Dove and the Lamb. Okay, reading from the scripture list that we have up here. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame him, that is, Satan and his demonic hordes, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. John chapter 1, verses 29 and 32. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verse 32, And John bore him, that is Jesus, witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And finally, John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. Jesus said to his disciples, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, <clears throat> bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Fathers, we come before you, Lord, and begin to examine this topic, Lord, the two symbols of you and uh, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of the living God as the Lamb of God and the Dove which lighted upon Jesus at his baptism. Lord, I pray that you would visit this message with strength and power. And I pray, Lord, that each person would uh, uh, listen to what your spirit would be saying to the church in this manner, Lord God. And help us, Lord, to not only listen, but uh, seek to apply this message to our own lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, a few weeks ago I started a series entitled The Calvary Road, and I'm basing it upon this book by Roy Hessian. And I do a lot of quoting from the book, and I do this for a reason, as most of you will probably never maybe uh, read the particular uh, book, but it's got some good, solid meat to chew on. As the pastor of this church, I am called to feed you the flock of God. This is not Pastor Cliff's church. This is the Lord's church. Amen? Amen. And my job is to feed you the word of God and also to try to lead you into a deeper walk with the Lord. In books like The Calvary Road, if you pay heed to it, that's exactly what it will do. It will deep, deepen your walk with the Lord and help you to get a closer and closer relationship. And that's what uh, the uh, Christianity is all about, isn't it? The Christian faith is all about drawing close to God and getting close to Him. Now, 
I am using as a theme verse for the series, and they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not live their, love their lives unto the death. Okay? So, one of the great weapons that God gives us in our spiritual warfare against the enemy of our souls is the blood of the Lamb, the cross. It's like I've told you that uh, when... Uh, Greg Laurie, you know, one of the truly great evangelists of our day, when he was conversing with Billy Graham, he asked, Billy, if you were, uh, you know, an older Billy could talk to a younger Billy, what subject would he tell him to preach more on? The subject to really emphasize. And without hesitation, Billy Graham said, I would t preach on the cross more because that's where the power is. And so I want you to have spiritual strength. I want you to have spiritual power. We're all fighting this spiritual battle, brothers and sisters, and you need power over the enemy because you cannot defeat him on your own strength. Chapter one that we covered was on brokenness. We need to be broken. And this employs crucified living. The Apostle Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And Jesus himself told us we need to be practicing this crucified living. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whosoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And here's a scripture I haven't shared with you on this subject of brokenness. This is Jesus to the Pharisees. Jesus said to them, that is the Pharisees, Have you never read in the scriptures, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Who's the stone that was rejected? It was Jesus, right? He was rejected by the builders. The builders were those same Pharisees. And he said, has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 44, this is in Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 and 44. Verse 44, and whosoever falls on this stone, that is Jesus, will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So you either fall on the stone... And become broken. And that's what we need to do, be doing brothers and sisters. We need to be broken pe people. That is referring to our own self-will. It needs to be broken. So that it be con can be conformed to his will. But if you don't do that. The stone falls on you. The, that is the judgment that befalls the world. And it will grind him to powder. Now, verses, or I'm sorry, chapters uh, 2 through 4 in the book we've already co uh, covered. 
Chapter 2 was cups running over. And the terminology in this book comes, of course, from the last phrase of Psalm 23, verse 5. My cup runneth over, or runs over. Now what's that talking about? That's talking about the cup of your heart, the human heart. And it's to be filled up with the Holy Spirit. Is it just to be filled up? No, it's to overflow. Because there's a dying and hurting world out there that needs that overflow of the Holy Spirit from your heart so that they might be touched. Amen? Okay. Chapter 3 was the way of fellowship. Now at the fall of man, fellowship, that is communion, was not only broken with God, but also broken with our fellow man. What did Adam and Eve do? They ran off and hid. It was like they wanted no part of God anymore after they had disobeyed. That fellowship with Him was broken. And not only broken with God, but also our fellow man. The very next chapter, you have the story of Cain and Abel, how Cain slew Abel. And God's cure for this is walking in the light. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 tells us that if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from every sin. Hallelujah. We have fellowship one with another. Fellowship is not only restored with God, but fellowship with each other. Or at least it should be. But the key to that is to walk in the light. What does it mean to walk in the light? What do we learn? We learn to walk in the light is to allow the searchlight of His Holy Spirit to penetrate even the dark recesses of our beings. Amen? And we say with the psalmist in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me to the way everlasting. Psalm 19, 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O oh Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Hallelujah. That's what it means to walk in the light, brothers and sisters. Chapter 4 was the highway of holiness. And Hessian's terminology comes here comes from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 8 and 9. Number one, we're to all walk this highway of holiness, right? We're to strive for a life of holiness, to live holy and pure. And it says there in Isaiah uh, chapter 35, verse 9, it says, No lion will be there. What's the symbol of, uh, what is lion uh, a, a symbol, symbolized in the Bible? It symbolizes the devil and his demonic hordes. Be sober, be vigilant. For your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. And also it says, no ravenous beast will be on this highway to holiness. Would I tell you the ravenous beast is symbolic of? 
symbolizes the false prophets and false teachers that are out there. Jesus said to beware of false prophets who come to you dressed as sheep, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. But you don't have to worry about them if you are on the road walking that highway of holiness. And finally, I ended last week's message on this subject of the highway of holiness with the examination of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6, where he felt himself transported to the throne room of God, and the seraphim were round about hovering and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What happened to Isaiah? He fell to his knees and he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He became, when he beheld the holiness and the glory of God, he became acutely aware of his own sin, his own shortcomings. And I also talked about Moses. When he beheld God speaking to him through the burning bush, what did the God tell him to do? He told him, take off your shoes, for you are standing on holy ground. And later, Moses would have these visions also on the uh, Mount Sinai when he received the Ten Commandments. And he wanted to see the glory of God, and God said, you can't see my glory because nobody can see my full glory and live. But he caught enough of uh, God's glory that when he went down to the children of Israel afterwards, his face actually shone. So Moses became aware of the glory of God and the holiness of God. Now this week, I'm going to cover chapter 5, which is entitled, The Dove and the Lamb. Now, Heshem begins the chapter with a discussion about bearing fruit. He writes, victorious living and effective soul winning service are not the product of our better selves and hard endeavors, but simply the fruit of the Spirit. We are not called upon to produce the fruit, but simply to bear it. It is all the time it is to be His fruit. He is the one that generates it in our lives. We just have to be yielded to Him. Nothing is more important than that we should be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. So, a couple of things that stood out to me. He talks about effective soul winning service. You ever try to win your unsaved friends and relatives, your unsaved loved ones? You ever try to win them for the Lord and you try to jump in there with both feet? Oh, you've got to receive Jesus. And they just flat out reject you. The problem is, often we're trying to do that brothers and sisters, in our own strength. And our own strength is not going to accomplish anything. It's got to be the Lord flowing through us, the Holy Spirit flowing through us. Another thing that, uh, you know, 
He said right here, we're not called upon to produce the fruit, but simply to bear it. So, you know, I never even thought of it this way until uh, I was preparing the sermon. You know, so often we try to produce the fruit through self-effort, and we fall flat on our faces because we can't do it. It's got to be Him that works through us. We just have to learn to be yielded to Him and let His Spirit speak through us. There's another interesting scripture. You know, I took a uh, class my uh, final year of Bible uh, college on the uh, fruit of the Spirit. And one of the uh, scriptures that I heard quoted was this scripture up there, Second Peter... Am I behind the... Okay, I'm not behind. <laughs> Sometimes I get behind on the uh, slides. Sorry about that. Okay, uh, this scripture in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Peter writes, by which... And by which, uh, what, is, what is the which in there? Well, if you go back to the previous verse, he's talking about coming to a full knowledge of God. The word in the Greek is epigenosko. I've to told you about epigenosko before. You know, there's three kinds of knowledge that are talked about in the Bible. One is head knowledge. The third is genosko, which is heart knowledge. It's experiential knowledge. It's like when you, what you have. You can learn all that you want about driving a car. You know, the book learning, the driver's ed. But that, you know, nothing uh, that will not allow you to drive the car. You've got to get behind the wheel and actually experience it. Okay? So that's the difference between the head knowledge, the oida is the Greek word, and the gnosko. But this carries it a, uh, a step further. Epigonosko is the full knowledge, the intimate knowledge. That's what Jesus wants from you. He wants you to know him intimately, the epigonosco. So Peter takes this word by which the epigonosco of God have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises that through these, now here it is here, you might be partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. You know that you're going to be a partaker of the divine nature. Now that doesn't mean that we become gods like some groups teach. But we become partakers of God's divine nature. And that partaker of the divine nature, that is the fruit of the Spirit. Partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Okay? This means being partaker of the divine nature is the fruit of the Spirit. And I've told you before, the fruit of the Spirit is the very nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very character of Jesus. Okay, we're told what the fruit of the Spirit is in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Who out there doesn't want those things? Anybody? I know I want it. I want to have more love in my life. I want to have more peace and joy and patience, kindness, all these different qualities. That's the very character of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he is all about. And then we have uh, the classic passage in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Where's that found? John chapter 15. What did I tell you that was called? That's part of the upper room discourse. In fact, it's right in the middle of it. John chapter 13 through 17. That was Jesus' swan song. His final discourse to his disciples. And he wanted to give them something to remember with. So you want to mature in your Christian walk? Read those chapters, the Upper Room Discourse, John chapter 13 through 17. And right in the heart of that Upper Room Discourse is John chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You know, something right there talks about us being pruned. What do you think happens, you know, when he prunes us? A lot of times there's pain, right? You ever think about that? It hurts when he prunes us. That is, he trims off that which is dead in our lives. Because it has no place in there. The dead part of our lives cannot bear fruit. Amen? How many of you know what I'm talking about? He trims off that which is dead so that may be, we may bear more fruit. Verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. They felt they were clean because he preached his word to them. And that cleansed them. Cleansed them even more when he would die on the cross just hours later. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing." Okay, the dove and the lamb. Now the classic passage that uh, draws upon both images is John chapter 1, verses 29 and 30. The next day Jesus, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 32, And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and the Spirit of God remained on him. That is Jesus. So the Lamb is who? The Lamb is Jesus. And the dove is who? The Holy Spirit. Hessian writes, What a suggestive picture we have here. The dove is descending upon the Lamb and resting herself upon him. The lamb and the dove are surely the gentlest of God's creatures. 
The lamb speaks of meekness and submissiveness, and the dove speaks of peace. What more peaceful sound than the cooing of a dove on a summer's day? Surely this shows that the heart of deity, the heart of God, is humility. Hessian goes on to say, When the eternal God chose to reveal himself in his son, he gave him the name of the Lamb. And when it was necessary for the Holy Spirit to come into the world, he was revealed in the emblem of a dove. The main lesson of this incident is that the Holy Spirit as the dove could only come upon and remain upon the Lord Jesus because he was the Lamb. Had the Lord Jesus had any other disposition than that of the Lamb, that is submissiveness, humility, and self-surrender, that dove could never have rested upon him. The dove can only abide on us when we are willing to become as the Lamb. How impossible it is that he should rest upon us while self is unbroken. Now, Hessian then drew the contrast between the fruit of the Spirit, which I just related to you back there in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and uh, 23, and the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh are uh, related in verses uh, 19 through 21. Just before the, the fruit of the Spirit, he talks about the works of the flesh. Now, aside from the really gross sins that are reflected in the works of the flesh, which include those of immorality and drunkenness, and the use of drugs. Remember I told you about pharmakeia? You know, where it talks about witchcraft. That translates the Greek word pharmakeia, which also means the use and misuse of drugs. But aside from these gross sins, you know, he lists some of the things in here. And I just wrote them down because they apply to the church. You didn't know that uh, the church would be guilty of works of the flesh, did you? Well, some people do that. You know, some of these things include hatred. You know, hatred to, towards your brothers and sisters. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago, I think. Then there's strife. There's all conflict. Do we ever have conflict within the church? That's in the list of the works of the flesh. Jealousy. You look at somebody jealous, boy, I wish I had his gift or her gift. You know, she sings really beautifully, you know. I wish I could do that. Also divisions. You have church splits. Amen. You know, that comes from a work of the flesh. Sometimes you have to have divisions. If the preacher is up there, preaching false doctrine, then you got to take a stand against that. Amen? Got to preach good doctrine, good sound doctrine. And brothers and sisters, I strive my best to make sure that I'm preaching to you the right doctrine because I'm responsible to God for what I teach, for what I preach from this pulpit. 
And finally, seditions. Seditions are rebellions, in other words. People rebel. This happens in the church. And those are listed right there in the works of the flesh. Why? It's because exactly that final phrase that Hessian relates there. Self is unbroken. You're in the flesh. You're in your own self-will instead of being led by the Spirit of God. Now, Hessian goes on ahead and elaborates on this image of the Lamb. Jesus, the Lamb of God. The disposition of the Lamb. First of all, is simplicity. Jesus was the simple Lamb. It says he made him, Hessian writes, he made himself as nothing for us and became the simple Lamb. He's alluding to that kenosis passage I've shared with you many times. Philippians chapter uh, 2 verses 5 through 10. Paul writes, Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, thought not equality with God to be something to be held onto. But he humbled himself and took the form of the servant, and he further humbled himself by taking the death of a cross. Jesus lived his life in humility. He was a leader. He said, you call me master and so I am. But he said we're to follow his example and to live lives of humility. He had no strength of his own, no wisdom of his own, no schemes of him to get himself out of difficulties. You know, when I read that, I thought to myself, you know, I pictured him there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's not there praying and saying, you know, brooding and uh, saying to himself, how do I get myself out of the, this mess? I'm supposed to go, go to the cross tomorrow. How do I get myself out of the, this mess? Well, first of all, he didn't need a scheme because he already knew that he could get out of it if he wanted to. You know, he gets there in, in, and uh, Judas comes up and all the uh, uh, guards and everybody come out with, with swords and clubs and everything. And they're about ready to apprehend him. Then what happens? Peter steps in. Peter was always very impetuous. And he steps in and he cuts off the ear of the high priest with his sword. And what did Jesus say? Did he say, go get him, Peter. You know, stand up for me. No, he rebuked Peter. And he said, put your sword back in its place. For all that take up the sword will die by the sword. And so was born our English expression, live by the sword, die by the sword. Okay? And then, the Lord Jesus says something else. He says, don't you know, Peter, that if I called upon my Father, He would send 12 legions of angels to deliver me. So Jesus knew He could be delivered from that. But he, that wouldn't have been according to God's will. He was meek and He was submissive. He lived a simple life. That is, live according to 
the leading of God the Father. He just lived in simple dependence on the Father at all times. He said in John chapter 5 verse 19, The Son cannot do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. Hessian adds, But we, how complicated are we? What schemes have we had of helping ourselves and getting ourselves out of difficulties? What efforts of our own have we resorted to? To live the Christian life and to do God's works as if we were something or could do something. Jesus said, for apart from me, you can do nothing. The dove had to take his flight. That is from us, at least as far as the conscious blessing of his presence are concerned. Because we are not willing to be simple lambs and just follow the will of the Father. Amen? The second aspect of the Lamb of God. Hessian writes that he was willing to be the shorn lamb. Willing to be shorn of his rights, his reputation, and every human liberty that was due him, just as a lamb is shorn of his wool, he never resisted. Peter uh, says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus never said, you cannot treat me like that. I'm the very Son of God. Don't you know that? But we, on how many occasions, have been unwilling to be shorn of our rights. We are unwilling, we're unwilling for His sake to lose what was our own. The dove had to take His flight from us because we were not willing to be shorn lambs and we were left without peace, hard and unloving. The third aspect, he was the silent lamb. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Hessian writes here, Facing the calamities, calumnies of man, we read, He answered nothing. Matthew chapter 27 verse 12. He never defended himself, never nor explained himself, but we have been anything but silent when others have said unkind or untrue words about us. Our voices have been loud in self-defense and self-vindication. And there has been anger in our voices. We have excused ourselves when we should have admitted frankly our wrong. On every occasion... The dove had to take his flight and withdraw his peace from our hearts because we were not willing to be the silent lambs. Number four, he held no grudges. 
Do you hold a grudge uh, towards anybody in life, brothers and sisters? Need to get rid of that grudge. Jesus held no grudges because he was the spotless lamb. Luke chapter 23. I'm sorry. uh, Not only did nothing escape his lips, but there was nothing in his heart but love towards those that sent him to the cross. There was no resentment towards them, no grudges, no bitterness. Even as they were putting nails through his hands, he was forgiving them and asking him, his father to forgive them as well. Isn't that what Jesus did? They nailed him to that cross, set it down, and his prayer was on behalf of his executioners. What did he say? He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He forgave those that executed him and put him through all of that pain and suffering. He was willing to suffer it all in meekness for us. But what resentment and bitterness have we had in our, not had in our hearts to this one and that one? And over much less than what they did to Jesus. Each reaction left a stain on our hearts and the dove had to fly away because we were not willing to bear it and forgive it for Jesus' sake. The fifth and final aspect of the Lamb is that He took our place. He is the substitutionary Lamb. Peter writes in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot or blemish. And Peter also goes on later on in his epistle to write, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. You are healed spiritually by the stripes, the wounds of Jesus Christ. Hessian writes, The humility of the Lord Jesus in becoming our Lamb was necessary, only that He might become on the cross our substitute, our scapegoat, so that there might be forgiveness for our sins and cleansing from their stains as we repent of them. Okay, wrapping up here. little poem here. The contrast between Jesus... And the way that we react. It says, He humbled Himself to the manger and even to Calvary's tree. But I am so proud and unwilling His humble disciple to be. He yielded His will to the Father and chose to abide in the light. But I prefer wrestling. Wrestling in my own strength, in other words. To resting. Jesus rested upon his Father. 
I prefer wrestling to resting and try by myself to do right. And then the poet concludes with this, with a prayer to God. He says, Lord, break me and cleanse me and fill me and keep me abiding in thee that fellowship may be unbroken and thy name be hallowed in me. Concluding this portion here about the Lamb, I want to just, I'm going to read directly out of the book. This is a really touching story. It's about an African Christian that was ascending a hill going to a meeting. Hessian writes, A saintly African Christian told a congregation once that he was climbing, that as he was climbing the hill to the meeting, he heard steps behind him. He turned and saw a man carrying a heavy load up the hill on his back. He was full of sympathy for him and spoke to him. Then he noticed that the man's his hands were scarred, and he realized that it was Jesus. He said to him, Lord, are you carrying the world's sins up the hill? No, said the Lord Jesus, not the world's sin, just yours. As the Af that African simply told the vision that God had just given him, the people's hearts and his heart were broken as they saw their sins at the cross. Our hearts need to be broken too, and not only, and only when they are shall we be willing to for the confessions, the apologies, the reconciliations, and the restitutions that are involved in a true repentance for sin. So concluding this, Jesus as the Lamb of God was the simplistic Lamb. He had merely followed the will of the Father in his life. He was the shorn Lamb. He allowed those who crucified him to do whatever they wished to do to him. He was the silent Lamb. He made no defense to those who falsely accused him. He was a spotless lamb. He had nothing but love and forgiveness towards them that nailed him to the cross. And finally, he was a substitutionary lamb. He took our place there on the cross and bore the death that we rightly deserve. You probably noticed maybe that all these begin with an S. The simplistic lamb, the shorn lamb, the silent lamb, the spotless lamb, and the substitutionary lamb. That's the five aspects of the Lamb of God. So, concluding thoughts here. Hessian writes, The dove is the emblem of peace, which suggests that if the blood of Jesus has cleansed us and we are walking with the Lord, the, the Lamb in humility, the sign of the Spirit's fullness and presence will be peace. This is the only way of true peace in your heart, brothers and sisters. This indeed is to be the test of our walk all the way along. 
Paul writes, let the peace of God rule over your hearts. Colossians 3.15 If the dove ceases to sing in our hearts at any time, if our peace is broken, then it can only be because of sin. We must ask God to show us what it is. And be quick to repent.